Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're glad you're here with us this week. We have got a very interesting program on apprenticeship programs. You've heard us talk about this subject before, but today we're going to, going to give you some actual meat in the bones, some actual solutions that you can implement. Some of these are coming out of the great state of Connecticut. They've got some really sharp things happening up there. We'll be talking to our two guests about that in a moment. Right now, I want to check in with Lou Wise, my co-host. Lou is the president of All Metals and Forge Group, the sponsor for Manufacturing Talk Radio. Lou, what's going on up in New Jersey? Uh, well, I'm up because you're in Atlanta, so um, <laughs> everything is just everything's just fine here. Uh, I do have a the postscript for last week's show for our, uh, listeners to contemplate uh, going back and listening to it. Um, it's the it's uh, an hour show that we had regarding the ultimate economic indicator for U.S. manufacturers, and I'll bet if I ask that question to five people, no one will get that answer right. <laughs> that being said, we were talking about the state of the machine tool industry, and machine tool manufacturing and tool making has always been an, a precursor for. Uh, the economy that comes six to nine months down the road. Uh, it was an interesting show. Uh, they did talk about ups and downs, bumps and lumps. Uh, I strongly suggest that uh, you want to hear a little bit more about this indicator that you go to last week's show at mfgtalkradio.com and uh, listen to the uh, folks that we had on uh, last week. We have a couple of couple of news items, and um, one of them is really kind of exciting because I actually was there and saw it under construction on multiple uh, occasions. This past weekend, the new, improved, larger, deeper Panama Canal opened two years late. Hmm, maybe Donald should have built it and had the Mexicans pay for that one also. I think they may have had a problem with that, though. Uh, the uh, the, the uh, project uh, cost $5.2 billion. Two years uh, late, they wanted to open it on the 100th anniversary of the first canal that the U.S. built in 1914, but clearly they missed it by two years. Um, and then, of course, uh, we then made the second big mistake on that is that, um, and this was not part of any of the news articles that uh, I saw or any of the wire clips that I saw, but in 2003, we gave it away. We didn't sell it. We, it's all of our infrastructure, our power grid, our water system, our technology, and we gave it away. Now, I don't know if anybody has any idea how much it costs, but it costs about $5 million in fuel to go around South America. And the last number I heard was that it cost something like $100,000 to 
for $150,000 to go through the canal. Uh, and they actually go out to the ships that are waiting in line to go through the canal. They bring the uh, purser along uh, in the uh, terminal building. They take his credit card. They run the credit card. No cash flow problems whatsoever. And we gave it away. It was that that is stunning. And actually, uh, that should probably have been the first of a new series that Tim and I are going to be doing. And we're going to be doing it in this show. At the end of the show, we're going to be calling it Federal Follies. And I'm sure we made many more than just the Panama Canal. But that should be one of the Federal Follies. And we will be doing that every week at the end of the show. We're going to whip them, kick them, belittle and berate them. We're going to pick on everybody who does something stupid and asinine. We do happen to have one, though, for this show, in spite of the Panama Canal. So we're going to wait until the end so you can all hear it at that time. Uh, the next uh, news, which is hard to do news this week unless you bring up Brexit and what the Brits did to themselves. And um, Tim, why don't, you th- why don't you throw some some of your uh, opinions in on this one? You and I have had some private conversations over the last couple of days about how stupid they're doing things. Well, I, you know, I, know, I don't know what their uh, political reasons for doing it was. What they did was take a gamble when they decided to exit the uh, European Union. And, of course, now they have to renegotiate all of their agreements with all of the other EU partners. The challenge mm, there right. now is that Scotland wants to be part of the EU, so Scotland now wants to withdraw from the United Kingdom. And Ireland is following suit. So the U.K. may boil down to Britain and Wales. Queen Betty called me this morning, and she said she's not happy with all of this. You know, she's concerned that the 50 million that the government supplies them to live in a lifestyle of the kings and queens might be in question also. So um, it was amazing that the story that came out the day after the vote in the uh, London Mail or the Daily Mail was that for the most part, the people didn't really know what was involved. And it was shocking the next morning when the newspapers started getting phone calls from people saying, what is this? What are you talking about? And <laughs> the people really people really didn't know what it was about. So um, I guess we all have our follies, don't we? Uh, Tim, I'm going to flip this back to you. Well, let's talk about apprenticeship programs. We have addressed this subject before, but we have – two guests on the show today from the state of Connecticut. And I just I have to introduce them separately to just have a moment uh, with each of them because there's some really remarkable things happening in the state of Connecticut. Todd Birch is manager of the Office of Apprenticeship Training with the Connecticut Department of Labor. Uh, and they've been running apprenticeship programs for quite a while. Todd, how are you doing today? Hi, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. Thanks for having me on. Good. So we appreciate you having you on. And we also have Gary... Tobiello, who's technical support and safety manager at the Carvey Corporation. I was talking with Gary briefly before the show, and I thought I heard him say that he's been working with the state of Connecticut on apprenticeship programs for three years, and I would have been impressed. He said 30 years, which blew my doors off. Gary, welcome to the show. 
Uh, pleasure to be here, Tim. And uh, yeah, it's 30 years, and and we're happy to do it. So, Todd, give me an idea of how you work with companies like the Carby Corporation and help them develop apprenticeship programs. Sure. Well, we're proud to say in the state of Connecticut that apprenticeship is a Connecticut tradition. Um, next month, we'll be celebrating 79 years that the National Apprenticeship Law, also known as the Fitzgerald Act, was federally passed. Uh, William Fitzgerald was a resident of Norwich, Connecticut. He was a congressman, later became a commissioner of labor, and was always an ardent uh, advocate of apprenticeship. Uh, while he was promoting the furtherance of standards necessary to safe, safeguard the welfare and opportunities of apprentices. And we're proud that he came from Connecticut. This was passed on a national level. And the birthplace of apprenticeship ran through Connecticut in its beginnings. It's been uh, a fantastic program uh, over and over again throughout the world. And you have how many uh, companies that you're working with up in Connecticut on apprenticeship programs? Uh, Right now, I have over 16, right now, I have over 1,600 uh, companies, and I've just broken my self-imposed threshold of 6,000 registered apprentices amongst those companies. Wow. That's impressive. So, it's Gary, a, how did you – I'm sorry, Gary, how did you – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Gary, how did you get involved with an apprenticeship program in the state of Connecticut – 30 years ago, long before we heard about the skills gap and can't find people to fill jobs, you were way ahead of the curve. Well, you know, I think as we said before, uh, uh, apprenticeship programs in the state of Connecticut are not new. My father actually served an apprenticeship. He was an island toolmaker back in the early 50s. Um, I went through school, and after school, I decided that I'd rather make parts than design them, and I had an opportunity to serve an apprenticeship, and I did. That was back in 1970. So having come from that and, and seeing that, um, you know, skilled labor is a finite uh, finite thing, and the only way we're going to get people is to train them. So we made a decision uh, way back to start training our people, and uh, and, and we've this company has grown, and we, we've – pulled a lot of people out of that program and we've been very fortunate to retain most of them some have left but you know we retained a lot is, is Connecticut one of the first states to get involved in this because 37 years ago is a long time ago um, I'm, I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure if Connecticut was one of the first or not Todd, what's, what was the history you gave us on uh, apprenticeship programs in Connecticut? Um, I don't have the data when we actually started in Connecticut. There was a lot of different implementations. It started on a national level in 1937, so right, for probably Connecticut very shortly after there. I just don't have that number handy, unfortunately. Mm. Okay, okay. But it was it – was, uh, the bill, like I had stated, the bill was uh, introduced by a congressman from Connecticut – who was specific to the needs of uh, young workers in the textile mills in eastern Connecticut. Uh, and, you know, as history serves us, the atrocities of uh, child labor back then. And this gentleman stood up for basically protecting uh, children at that time from uh, conditions that he thought were uh, a little bit bizarre. 
Was this uh, part of the New Deal era during the Roosevelt years? Right, right, just before it. So this was in uh, 1937. So it's a couple years before that. Ah. Okay. Okay. So Gary, step number one, which I think uh, people are coming to grips with, you know, we all uh, thought, gee, maybe they'll come out of school trained for us. We're discovering that's not true. No. Number one, you've got to train them yourself. Would you agree, Gary? Yeah, we we do we do bring in uh, pre apprentices that come out of the uh, the the local vocational school uh, as juniors. They can work under what they have a what's called a work based learning program. Uh, when they are in their shop cycle, they can come in and work in the shop. And we've started quite a few uh, people off as pre apprentices, and. Uh, the beauty of that is those hours count towards their regular apprenticeship. So when they graduate, they can go on a full-time apprenticeship and uh, probably be done with their apprenticeship by the time they're 22 years old. Uh, several weeks ago, uh, we uh, were at the German consulate in New York, and they had a, uh, a panel discussion uh, with several German uh, educators and manufacturers and government officials, as well as uh, New Jersey Institute of Technology uh, here in New Jersey. And they were talking about the dual educational system, which required in Germany three, uh, I'm sorry, two uh, days of vocational training and three days of uh, liberal arts, reading, writing, arithmetic, and so on. Is this a similar type program? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly how it's broken down within the uh, within mm-hmm. the school, but yeah, it is. They have a, a, a certain amount of academics and then a certain amount of shop. Yeah, the uh, mm-hmm. the, the state of Connecticut uh, has a uh, the Connecticut technical high school system. It's the only one in the country that's statewide. There are currently sixteen technical high schools. In the state of Connecticut, the work is one. Uh, as far as curriculum, they have various vocations, auto body, carpentry, ma- uh, machine tool manufacturing, uh, plumbing. They all have a set curriculum, and the high school setup is, uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, there, there are two weeks in academics and then uh, two weeks in their vocation, vocational studies, which is their shop, so to speak. Uh, where they're learning from uh, the vocational type of uh, curriculum. Or as, uh, as as Gary had mentioned, uh, some of them in their junior year get released uh, to go actually work for an employer uh, as a, what they call a pre-apprentice, which is a pipeline for them to leave high school with apprentice, uh, you know, apprenticeable theory as well as hands-on, and they're well on their way uh, to becoming a journey person in, uh, in some sort of industry of, of manufacturing. Well, this is uh, fantastic because uh, part of that discussion that we had with uh, uh, Germany and some of the U.S. folks uh, about the apprenticeship programs, uh, it was kind of bismal as to what the facts are coming out of the United States, that uh, their first, a lot of school systems are first beginning to put shop back on the curriculum. Uh, there are some areas that can't afford it, so they don't do shop. 
Uh, and uh, one of the big problems that Tim and I see over the last three years is that, you know, the parents have not been trained either uh, to have their uh, kids go to uh, they want them to go to college. Everybody wants it, their kids to have a college degree, a $200,000 debt, come back, live in the house, and not have a job. So uh, your, I think your way probably works better. Um, and it's by, by the numbers, uh, would you say 6,000 are signed up? That's correct. And I have to agree with you yeah. regarding tuition. Um we refer to you, and I think Gary would, would agree with this, that uh, I, I also was an apprentice. I'm a steam fitter, pipe welder by, by trade, and now I'm very, very fortunate that I run this program. Uh, it is definitely a grow-your-own-career. Uh, when you have the prospect, and I get nothing against higher education, uh, while working and earning a wage, the apprentice receive, receives a valuable education. If they go for their related instruction in the state of Connecticut to a community college, they're also getting an associate's degree. So they're learning a vocation, they're getting an associate's degree, all the while they're making money. So and not incurring any debt uh, where others are going to straight to college and they've received a, hef a hefty debt and no promise of a job at all. So I, I, I totally agree with you. And, and with regard to that German consulate, I believe there was a company there called Trump, if I was if I was correct. Yes. You were, yeah, they were there, they were there also. They are one of our registered apprenticeship sponsors in the state of Connecticut. We're very proud of their oh. work. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, they were at the event as well. Um, it, it's it's interesting that uh, I, I'm in the metals industry 50 years and. Uh, I remember my father was of European extraction. My father was of European extraction, and uh, he moved to uh, the, the United States in the early 1900s. And when I became uh, mid-teens, he said, you know, you ought to, you ought to go to uh, my union because it's a father-son union, and they'll train you, and you'll always have a profession and uh, I said, Papa wasn't interested. And uh, he he would have been right in one extent, but he would have been ultimately wrong because they don't have line-to-type operators anymore. And that's that's what my father was uh, and he, his whole life. And they didn't take it away. They just shut down the whole technology. So uh, I'm glad I wound up doing what I'm doing. Todd, that, uh, the state of, uh, the, Todd, the state of Connecticut has got several initiatives and new programs going on. Would you uh, would you share those with our listeners? Sure. Well, I mean, it also comes from the federal level and, and address the state and the federal level. Um, manufacturers in the state of Connecticut, uh, to their credit, have for years gone to their government and said, "We need help. Uh, we need skilled workers." And we need them now. So the deliberations of state government take some time, but the, you know we can agree that this is an immediate need. And it goes back to you know, the fostering of people need to go to college all the time. There was, you know, more addressing the skills gap. There's been a very large gap in those that 
especially the parents that want to keep their kids away from the 3Ds, the dirty, dark, dangerous machine shops. The ones that I've been into are cleaner than a surgery uh, a surgery suite at a hospital. They're fantastic. Um, yeah. I, I, the, the state has actually had an initiative. Before I get into financial initiatives, uh, we just had our legislative session this year. It just wound down about a month ago. And we had a public act signed. Uh, was an act encouraging middle school and high school students to consider careers in manufacturing. Uh, there's going to be a, com uh, a commission, a board uh, convened uh, various representatives uh, to get together and how to start how to start the conversation. How do we get not only uh, students but parents involved in the early age, sixth and seventh grade, to have an understanding that manufacturing. Though some have thought it had been had gone away for a, a bit of time, mind you that we still make a, a tremendous amount of the durable goods that are created for the entire world. But it's a, it's a viable pathway for a very very good paying job with no debt for our uh, for higher education. So it's been a conversation that's been going for quite some time. There are manufacturing associations. There are five in the state of Connecticut that do very very good work. Um, but just uh, the apprenticeship program itself and those that actually uh, agree to become registered sponsors like the Carby Corporation, I mean, that's just it, it's a tradition. It's been around for a long time. It's a proven fact that it works. And when you had said you know, that they had been around for 30 years, that doesn't surprise me. I have some, I have one in particular plumbing company that has been around for 107 years. And they've had registered apprentices wow. or something like that, you know, or apprentices, I should say, uh, since that time. Uh, we also have in the state of Connecticut on a financial basis, again, industry saying, you know, please help us. We have something called the Manufacturing Innovation Fund, uh, which supports manufacturing and efforts to train registered apprentice workers in their appropriate skills. And <clears throat> there are wage subsidies. Uh, with a cap of $6,000 for year one and $7,000 for year two. Uh, there's also uh, related instruction reimbursement to the company for $2,500 for year one and $1,250 for year two. And there's a lot of credentialing in manufacturing, uh, allowing for $1,000 worth of uh, credentialing costs in those years. Uh, a fantastic program. It's working very well. Um, there's also some uh, manufacturing tax credits, uh, a manufacturing tax credit right now that's available uh, for the development of skilled workers. Um, and it goes against the uh, corporate business tax up to $7,500 per apprentice. So by industry asking its government in the state of Connecticut, uh, give us some help. Uh, they've definitely come through with a good portion uh, of available resources for them. Uh, there's also, uh, this is on the, from the White House, uh, national level, the American Apprenticeship Initiative Grant, which we received. Uh, again, it's to expand apprenticeships in what we call non-traditional occupation. And manufacturing falls into that category. We call non-traditional due to the fact that there's different aspects of you know, medical devices, so on and so forth, that manufacturers are creating. Um, and that gets, uh, it's basically like a partial scholarship for Education, the communicate, uh, the community college system in the state of Connecticut uh, is starting to become a pipeline for uh, training people to get into 
manufacturing. It's a 10-month certification program. That coalesced with the, a registered apprenticeship program is no doubt, and I, I hope Gary would, would agree with me, is the way to go. Uh, you, you get some education, some hands-on on the shop floor, in the, in the, in the uh, manufacturing centers, in the community colleges, and then yeah, you absolutely. become a registered apprentice, and that's, that's, that's the way to go. So that's what we, ha we have. Those are some of the initiatives we have in the state of Connecticut. We're pretty proud of them. Uh, we, we would like everybody to say, hey, this, would be, this is absolutely fantastic, best thing since sliced bread. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people are sometimes a little bit leery of government, and that's just the way it goes. Uh, we are the Department of Labor. We're here to help businesses. We're here to help employees as well. And uh, I spend every single day trying to talk to people about how positive these programs are. And just all they need to do is just sign up. There's no, not very much onerous uh, paperwork. And it's another thing that people are fearful of when government starts uh, handing out money to help them. Uh, a couple of pages, <laughs> two, three pages. I mean, if there's an obstacle and they say, well, this is too much. Well, I can look at the paperwork and hopefully say, well, either my staff can help you fill that out or, you know, what's the real big issue here? Maybe I could get rid of some of this red tape for you because I really, really want to spur uh, manufacturing growth in Connecticut. I mean, Connecticut's interesting. It's a very small state. It's in between two of the bigs, Boston and New York. But we make three things really, really interesting in the state of Connecticut. We make things go underwater with our submarines, which is the most complicated piece of machinery in the world. We have Pratt & Whitney, which Pratt & Whitney jets uh, are on a ton of airplanes, and we also have Sikorsky, Ele uh, Sikorsky uh, uh, helicopter here, and we have Otis Elevator here as well. So we have some really interesting things in Connecticut. Um, we invented the wiffle ball. We invented the first Frisbee, uh, and a lot of it comes down to manufacturing. Again, a very small, small state used to be jam-packed with a lot of manufacturers, and some things have gone away because of economic conditions, but things are starting to come back because we're, no, no doubt about it, one of the best innovators in the entire country, if not the world, for uh, making durable goods. You know, it, it was interesting, the numbers that I heard, uh, unemployment for the uh, 16 to 24-year-olds uh, in the United States is about 28%, and the same age bracket in Germany is 7%, right. uh, for all the reasons that you've just mentioned. Gary, I want to go to you just for a moment here. Uh, sure. We, you know, we've identified the first thing, uh, the first solution really is to train uh, your apprentices yourself, but then there's this connection that appears that you have had with working with technical, vocational, county, or community colleges. How many of your people do you draw from those kind of resources? Uh, we draw most of them. Uh, we do we do have some people that have been apprentices and are apprentices now that, that started off in our company as machine operators and uh, showed some potential and want to learn want to learn want to learn the trade and we we moved them up, but. Um, a good percentage of our people come through the uh, through the schools. I'm, I'm actually a member of the uh, Technical Trades Advisory Committee for the, the local vocational school, and uh, I've also been in the Advanced Machining Center that uh, Todd spoke about, which is very impressive. Um, so you know the, the resources are there. I think I think one of the biggest problems 
is something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, and that there's a stigma with a lot of the parents that they have to steer their kids towards college. And, uh, you know, I've heard comments made that, well, without college, you just can't get a job. And it's, it's naturally, it's just not true. Um, I've had, when we sign a pre-apprentice, naturally we have to have a, uh, a parent here because they're minors. And I take them through on a tour of the plant, and they just can't believe that the plant's climate controlled, the floors are washed. Uh, you know, it, it's a state-of-the-art uh, facility. It's not what they're picturing at all. So I think we have to do a little bit better to try and get the word out as far as that goes. Uh, this is coming up in October, the fourth year, I believe it is, for Manufacturing Day. I, I presume that you're well-versed in that. Uh, do you know how many companies in Connecticut are uh, uh, part of the that one-day event? Um, I don't. Todd may. I, I don't know offhand. I've, I've talked to a couple of manufacturing associations, and they're still – in the beginning stages of, even though it's uh, July now, but they're in the beginning stages yeah. of, uh, 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 of having discussion about what they would like to do for that day. Well, just for our audience, let me just give a, a quick uh, synopsis. That Manufacturing Day was started uh, four years ago, uh, and it's the first Friday in October where uh, the government's various state agencies, federal agencies, manufacturing companies. As a matter of fact, Trump is also uh, uh, part of that as well. And uh, they open up manufacturing plants in every state in the country. Uh, I think last year there was a total of 2,400 that opened up one day that allowed students, parents, uh, naturally, uh, teachers and uh, consultants, anybody who wanted to see that uh, a manufacturing plant today is no longer dark, dirty, and dangerous, and that, as you pointed out, uh, they're clean and uh, they are good uh, surroundings and good environment to be working in, and they make good money. Matter of fact, when I retire, I think I'm going to become an underwater welder. They make $150,000 a year. I, I've done that. I don't recommend you doing that at all, actually. No. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, then I'll have to tell my wife that that's draw a line on that one through the our, my list of things to do. That's an interesting apprenticeship in its own right. You're, you know, if someone's coming out of a high school – just a regular high school, not a vocational school, and they get hired by a underwater welding company. How do you explain to this potential apprentice, kid, you're going to get in a diving suit, and I'm going to put an electrical cord in your hand, and you're going to weld. I wonder how many people they actually really have to sign up for that from time to time, but it does pay a lot because... Who wants to jump in the water with an electric cord in their hands? So. Well, I have to I have to tell you, by coincidence, I was on vacation a couple of weeks ago up on Cape Cod, and I happened to meet a underwater welder who takes the summer off and tends bar in uh, one of the towns on the Cape, and and he was only about 25 years old, so he makes a lot of money all year, and in the summer he parties. <laughs> but he does. He, he does make a lot of money, though. 
Yeah, it sounds like a fun thing to do. We're going to take a short commercial break after which we will be back with our two guests as we talk about apprenticeship programs and see if we can define a few more things for other companies that they can do. Uh, and I'm going to also talk about uh, MFG Day just a, a touch when we get back from this short commercial break. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment, components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials? 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady. We're talking with Gary Coviello, who is the Technical Support Safety Manager at the Carby Corporation, and Todd Birch, who's Program Manager, Connecticut Department of Labor and the Office of Apprenticeship Training. We've learned some fascinating things about what these two gentlemen are doing up in the state of Connecticut. Lou just mentioned Manufacturing Day, which can be found at mfgday.com. They uh, put on, I think it was over 2,000 events last year all across the country. Connecticut currently has six events scheduled. I happen to be down in the Atlanta area. The great state of Georgia has one event scheduled. Come on, Georgia, get on the stick here. We've got to get caught up. Got to open your doors and have uh, kids come in from high schools, technical schools, vocational county and community college, or Georgia Tech, great university down here. See what you folks do in manufacturing. As uh, Gary was pointing out, it is not dark, dirty, and dangerous anymore. I've been on uh, some of the manufacturing floors. Uh, they're as clean as hospital floors, folks. Uh, they are as high tech as hospitals are these days. Gary, what kind of training do you need to give these folks? Because Actually, what we're seeing, uh, Lou and I were at uh, Fabtech, which was a, uh, a technical trade show. We see mm-hmm. uh, a 1.2 million square feet of machines and people running around with iPads running them, not uh, with grease up to their elbows. What's going on in your shop? Well, we have that, too. We have CNC equipment uh, where um, 
you know, we have the, the capability to uh, take a print that was designed uh, on a CAD system, and they can import that into a, a, a another computer program called a CAM system and generate a program to run the CNC machines. Uh, uh, the people, again, are very proficient. Um, but a lot of a lot of what we do is not only the high tech, but the old, uh, if you want to call it old school, uh, in the metal forming trades, it, it's it's a lot of hands on. Uh, you're getting metal to move within the dies, and it takes uh, it takes know how and it takes a little bit of art and a, a little bit of, a little bit of work and a lot of experience to sit down and, and develop a, a set of tools to get it to make the part that you want. Is there a little finesse involved in some of that, Gary? A lot, a lot. Yeah, that's <laughs> probably that's probably ninety five percent of it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there is. There are a lot of things we think we can automate, but uh, when it comes to uh, the human eye and the human hand, it's pretty hard to get that precise. Gary, what's the youngest uh, you see an apprentice coming into your program? Uh, as I said, we'll take uh, 16-year-olds in as pre-apprentices. Okay. And, uh, and, to- and, Todd, you're trying to reach down into those earlier grades, grades 11 and 12. Uh, uh, how? What's the challenge there to get these kids involved? Parents. <laughs> <laughs> you stole I, my I, line. When I, when I address a lot of, of I mean, the, you know, kids are kids. You know, they have wide eyes and big aspirations. And somebody's going to be paying the tab for their, their education going forward. When I show it as a business plan that they have the potential to make in four, two years as an apprentice, possibly fifty, sixty thousand dollars or if they want to go into debt for two years at a, at a college for about ninety thousand dollars. It it gives parents caution for pause. They they think about it. And it, even though we're talking about manufacturing itself, there are so many different aspects of manufacturing uh that I think people need to be sort of awakened to. There's there's quality assurance. There's quality control. Uh, certain, depending on the size of the manufacturer, there's environmental implications where they might need an environmental engineer. There's uh, from every everywhere from the person that takes care of the commissary, so to speak, all the way down to the payroll clerks. Uh, manufacturing is a huge industry, and I think, and I agree with Gary. That's what we're we're trying to do uh, as an agency. Department of Labor is to say, hey, apprenticeship is a cool thing. Uh, these jobs are here. They're ready to go. We need folks. And what really actually personally scares me, being in this industry for, for a bit of time, is to see that we have what they call, and I don't like this because I'm starting to go gray myself, the graying of the industry, mm-hmm. uh, where people are starting <laughs> to retire on the back end. And unfortunately, I think we only see anywhere from a five to 12 year span of time right now from today where the people that have gained those, as, as you guys have just re- uh, referred to, the finesse factor are the people that really know how to get things made. They can't transfer those skills into somebody coming right out of high school or right after a community college because they're all going to be retiring very soon. And there's, there's going to be, in my opinion, if, the, if people don't engage in registered apprenticeship, they, the industry, unfortunately, is going to miss this 
little bit of an opportunity that the window's open for right now. Well, it's interesting because uh, the finesse factor is something that they're going to have a hard time, even with intelligent machines, to capture. You know, there's an old joke in the plumbing industry. A guy's got pipes in his basement leaking all over. He calls in a plumber. The plumber walks around the basement staring at all the pipes, pulls out a pipe wrench, puts it on one particular pipe, and gives it about half a crank, and all of the leaks across the basement stop. He hands the guy a bill for 650 bucks. And the homeowner says, 650 bucks to take a wrench and just eat on one pipe? He said, no, 50 bucks to go eat on one pipe. $600 to know where to go eat on which pipe. Yeah. <laughs> That's the finesse factor that uh, they're going to have a tough time with computers. Gary, what, um, uh, what are the benefits for apprentices that you see from your perspective coming into the Carby Corporation? Well, there are benefits both ways. If I could just back up just a step when you mentioned the grain factor. Um, sure. One of the big advantages that we have over, I think, a lot of companies that haven't been as aggressive in training as we as we have is I think our average age in the skilled section is, is lower than many companies, you know, because we have so many young people right now. Um, right. As far as the benefits, you know, the, the benefits are uh, – Almost, almost what you want to make them. You know, we we train in in several different areas. We train in tool making, tool and die making, eyelet tool making, machine repair, um, and each of those, each of those, as far as the benefits go, they're 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 high paying jobs, they're secure jobs, um, along with the the fringe benefits and 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 retirement benefits to go with them. Uh, you have the security. And and as Todd said several times, you don't have the debt that goes with that. Yeah, and, right. And you're going to have a job. You know, one of the things I always remember with my father as an Iowa toolmaker is, is he was never without work. So uh, I think that's one of the biggest benefits. But oh, uh, well, I'm glad I I'm glad I didn't become a linotype operator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad well, you know, to do the welding. Yeah, yeah right. Todd, you mentioned that you can uh, go either north or south. You can go north $60,000 a year, or you can go south $60,000 in debt. What are the benefits for apprentices that you see uh, working with the state of uh, Connecticut? It's, kind of, it's interesting. It, it, in, I'm going to just go to the construction trades for me, specifically an electrician. I was recently uh, – one of my I, one of my staff representatives out signing up a, a brand new apprentice, and it was this employer's first apprentice that they've ever hired. Uh, this gentleman had been in, a, in business three years and wanted to expand, and just seeing that the guy that owns the electrical company had gone through the vocational technical high schools, went out, got his license, started his own business. And now is growing in hiring his first apprentice. That's an advantage because it gives hope not only to apprentice themselves saying, "Hey, I'm going to have a job and I'm going to go through a four-year program and I'm going to be very, very good at what I do." It, it's good to see on the employer side that they believe in what they do so much that they actually want to give somebody else a chance. So it, it, it's just seeing that apprenticeship itself is the true measure. A workforce development. There's no question about it. It gives people hope as far as far as what they can do with their hands to you know, to feed themselves. Uh, you get a college degree. 
again, no, no, no disrespect to higher education. As soon as you graduate, what are you going to do? This right. is a totally different type of, of, of product with uh, manufacturing, electricians, plumbers, what have you. You have a career path right in front of you that you just need to go and follow, and you're going to be great at it. And you're doing it mistaken. while you're, you're earning while you're learning. No sure. question about it. If I'm not mistaken, the vacant jobs in manufacturing right now nationwide is at three and a half million. And, uh, you know, if the politicians succeed at something and uh, wind up, quote unquote, bringing jobs back to this country, um, who are they going to get to fill the jobs? We can't fill the jobs right. that we have now. So right. this is a terrible, terrible dilemma. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the graying of the industry. You're seeing certain, in certain sectors of manufacturing, we've all seen the data, they're calling for in the next couple of years a pretty flat growth for employ, uh, prospective employment. But if you look at attrition or the amount of people that are retiring out of these roles, you have to backfill that. So you're not necessarily having an actual growth in manufacturing uh, prospective job opportunities. You're having a huge opening due to the fact that people are leaving because they're retiring. So I have to agree with you. It's sure. like, okay, where are we going to get these folks? Very hard. And there's another factor. And there's another factor. Our population growth has slowed. Yep. And number two is that our population divide between male and female uh, is 51% female now. I think it just ha happened within the last month or so. So now there's another pool of employees, and I'm going to ask you the question, if you happen to know, of the 6,000 uh, apprentices that have signed up, do you know what percentage are women? Uh, don't have the numbers in front of me right now. We, we are huge advocates of, of women in, in, in trades, no question about it. We, we give opportunities. Um, we had the Hartford Business Journal uh, Gary, I think you've seen this. Uh, there's another one of our sponsors uh, found a young a young woman at a car wash, mm -hmm. and she was running circles around the people at the you know, the other gentlemen at the car wash that were working there. So he got into a conversation with her, and he never forgot her name, and saw her a very very short time later at a community college. She wanted to become a nurse, but then decided to get into manufacturing. Uh, she just received in April, I believe it was, a national recognition for a future leader in women in manufacturing. And she decided, uh, she's working for uh, a particular manufacturing co company right now uh, and decided to go back to school to become an engineer because she knows how to make the part. Now she wants to just be able to design it and put her engineering stamp on it. So it, 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 she's one of our success stories. And one of the issues yeah. that we have with women getting into non-traditional trades are two things. Transportation and daycare are very tough. If we could answer a little bit of that, just a little bit of that question, I think you could have more mm. women expanded into the, into the roles because sure. they're ready and willing to work. There's no question about it. It's just how do we get them there and how can we you know, help them out just a little bit. And I think we, we'll find a better pool of workers, no question about it. I went to an event in Wisconsin where they had the annual uh, conference, Women in Manufacturing, and uh, it, it was really fabulous. I mean, these were uh, young, maybe not so young, bright, 
educated women who realized that the way for them to make it uh, in a different direction is going through manufacturing and ultimately get into uh, administration. And in some cases, I met uh, several women that have risen to the level where they own manufacturing companies. So it's it's really great. The only thing I objected to the whole day, of course, was having lunch with them all. They really <laughs> did talk loud. <laughs> uh, Gary, before we wrap excuse, up this excuse segment, me, I'm looking for uh, I'm looking to give my apology to all the females listening. <laughs> uh, Gary, before we wrap up this segment, Gary Coviello is technical support safety manager at the Carby Corporation. Gary. Uh, the Carby Corporation. How do people get a hold of the Carby Corporation? What's your website? Our website is uh, www.carbycorp.com. Great. Uh, Gary, thank you for being on the show with us. We appreciate you being here. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. And Todd, before we go into our next segment, which is the federal follies, uh, I'd like you, and uh, in in the state of Connecticut is not included in this. Uh, but uh, I would just like you to share with our listeners how they get a hold of either you or the Office of Apprenticeship Training. Sure. Uh, we have our own domain name, which makes it easy. That's www.ctapprenticeship.com. Great, great. Todd uh, Birch, who is Program Manager, Connecticut Department of Labor, Office of Apprenticeship Training. Uh, Todd, thank you for being on the show with us today. No problem. And uh, those gentlemen are welcome to stay uh, with us. We are going to jump into a new segment for Lou and I. Lou and I have talked for uh, for years on what's going on in uh, business and uh, government. And you've heard some comments on the show as we've gone through that. And we've decided to, to introduce a new segment to the show. And one of Lou's first questions are, do you think we're going to have enough fodder for the federal follies? And I said, we're never going to run out, sadly. Um, Lou and I have talked about the XM Bank, and you've heard about the XM Bank on our show for quite some time, and there was a discussion about this organization that's been around for 80-some-odd years that helps companies put together export deals and in some cases helps them finance those deals or helps the buyer in the country where the product is going buy the product so the transaction can take place. Over the last 10 years, they've generated $7 billion net positive money into the federal treasury. Uh, I, I only think that the Commerce Department has a claim to fame to that for a few dollars, but the XM Bank clearly contributes to the federal government. And there was a big brouhaha at the end of last year whether or not they were going to reauthorize this 80-year-old institution. And finally, in December... A bipartisan group came together, and they decided that they would reauthorize on a long-term basis the XM Bank with one proviso, that in order to have transactions above $10 million, they had to have a board of directors approve it, and each of those board members had to be appointed and nominated into the position. So... They got it uh, reauthorized, and now we're waiting for the appointments with, again, one problem. We have Senate Banking Committee Chairman, the Republican Senator out of Alabama, Richard Shelby, who personally doesn't believe in the XM Bank, 
So he is not personally putting any nominations forward to fill the board so that we can have the XM Bank operate at full power. So here's what we have. We have one man who is overriding a bipartisan majority of the government that reauthorized the bank because he philosophically disagrees with the existence of the XM Bank. So one guy is holding up a portion of export trade in America. Lou and I see this stuff all the time. He's in manufacturing. It makes us nuts. Thus, the federal folly. Lou? I, I'm, I'm stuttering here because I'm surprised you didn't do a Timmy. And a Timmy <laughs> is a total outrage where you're totally losing it. And I guess I'm the one who's going to have to do it. This guy, Richard Shelby, Republican of Alabama, it must be an idiot. Has to be an idiot. He is the one person who would fill the quorum that would allow manufacturers to borrow, and I'm giving you some more details that uh, Tim uh, didn't. Uh, right now, the, the XM Bank can participate in transactions of under $10 million. If you have a quorum of three or more, you then can get involved in transactions larger than $10 million. And this guy, Richard Shelby, and by the way, he's coming up for election next uh, November, the November coming up. He's dead set, dead set against it because he doesn't believe in corporate welfare. And he thinks this is corporate welfare. So instead of corporate welfare, you have General Electric, for example, packed up and moved to France. They packed up and moved to Canada because they can get funding over there, and they don't need XM Bank support. The, the problem is that we are losing more jobs. Uh, XM Bank is one of the one of two agencies in our government that makes money. So maybe Richard Shelby is against the government making money. Maybe he's against actually creating jobs. It is despicable. I can't believe that this man was he, – he just uh, – he won in the primary. He's going to be running in November. And if you want to do something, get him out of office. And by the way, I did reach out to Richie and see if he wanted to respond to any of these comments, and I did not get any feedback, nor did I get anyone to acknowledge the situation as Tim and I – have just laid it out. So my last comment, Tim, we are never going to run out of federal follies because we could have done three or four today. So, That's it. I'm done. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, this is just ridiculous. You know, there's a, there was a talk uh, before they tried to renew this thing, and it was called – they were concerned that it was called crony capitalism. Well, let's be honest, folks. Uh, the Congress is crony capitalism. Who do you think funds the re-election of these guys? We all like to think it's us, the little guys, writing our little checks. Wrong. You know, corporate America writes big checks. They have big fundraisers and dinners at $2,000 a plate, and the, the uh, corporate titans go in and uh, 
uh, contribute to these campaigns. Tell me about crony capitalism. You're holding up an XM bank that in the grand scheme of things, by the way, does 2 to $3 billion in transactions a year against a $1.7 trillion GDP. I hardly understand why he's holding up this small facet of the government that actually makes money, but I will tell you this. His oath of office says that he will uphold the Constitution of the United States. And the last time I checked, the Constitution starts out with three words. We, the people. Well, I hardly think he's holding up we, the people, because it was a bipartisan group of senators who authorized the bank again. And by the way, just for fun, and because we really care, Lou and I separately carry a copy of the Constitution of the United States and the Declaration of Independence with us. So, you know, we're into it. We believe in what the document says, but I, I'm, I'm struggling with this one with Richard Shelby. I don't know how to Get him out of office. Get him out of office. All you folks in Alabama, you are losing jobs because of this single individual. This is absolutely terrible. Uh, I can't say enough bad things about this individual with his arrogance and asinine attitude about this whole XM Bank issue. And on that note, Tim, I, yeah. I got, I'm going to climb in off the ledge, and I will <laughs> yeah, calm right. down. We'll, we'll all take a breath. Uh, we want to uh, thank all you folks for listening to us. Next week, by the way, we're going to be talking about the ISM report that uh, will come out on, on this Friday, but we're going to be talking about it in depth. Typically what you'll hear on Friday is the ISM PMI number is and you'll get a little sound bite, and that's all you'll hear. We go into that report in depth. Hopefully Brad Holcomb, who's been with us on many, many shows, uh, will have a chance to join us. If he doesn't, Lou and I will stumble our way through the ISM report and uh, give you folks uh, the insight from our perspective on what the ISM report is, is uh, saying about what has happened over the last month in terms of manufacturing in the United States. And that uh, wraps us up for Manufacturing Talk Radio today. Again, tune in next week or go to mfgtalkradio.com to listen to any of our prior shows. They're all there under previous shows. We hope you will listen at your convenience. Thanks for listening today. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.